Quibi launched on April 6th and immediately signed up 1.7 million customers. The company is run by entertainment and tech royalty and has raised $1.8 billion. Unfortunately, Quibi is already dead. Not literally. You can still download and use the app, but they won't be around in 18 months. Luckily, your startup can be. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, and you're looking to build out that idea and be around a bit longer than Quibi is going to be around, apply to the virtual program starting June 15th at GetTackleBox.com. Before we start, a quick note on starting companies in the age of COVID-19. It's interesting. We just had a cohort go through Tacklebox that was fully virtual, and the results were amplified. Just as it is for a lot of things, COVID is a force multiplier for startups. If what you're building is solving a big problem for customers, they're going to be way more willing to jump and act on it now than they ever have. If what you're doing is only mildly interesting, then you will get zero customers. People are focused on what's right in front of their face right now, on the immediate painful problems. This is a blessing for founders. This gives you a level of transparency, gives you the ability to get an answer to the question, does anyone give a crap about what I'm doing or not? This answer is often muddled, but when people cut the fat like we're doing now in the time of COVID, they will double down on the things that matter. It's a great time to test out a startup idea. You will actually get an answer one way or the other. So if you've been sitting on one for a while, I actually think now is about as good a time as ever, maybe better than most times. All right, back to Quibi. We'll start with an important podcaster's note. I hate this type of commentary. There is no opinion lazier than I bet startup X will fail, aside from maybe, see, I told you startup X was going to fail. So me sitting here saying that Quibi is going to fail, it actually makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Predicting a startup will fail is like betting on every number on the roulette wheel except for that green double zero and then puffing out your chest when one of your numbers hits. My favorite line from my favorite scene from my favorite movie is from Ratatouille. It goes, the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating itself. When people dance on the graves of startups that don't work out, it discourages people with ideas from pursuing them. And helping people pursue ideas is the whole reason I exist, so generally I'm against this sort of thing. But with all that in mind, I still had to do this podcast. It's so rare that there's such a public example of the textbook wrong way to start a company. When Quibi fails spectacularly despite unlimited funds, I don't want people to throw up their hands and say, well, they had a valiant effort. It wasn't a valiant effort. Quibi will fail because of the same fundamental and avoidable mistakes that 95% of founders I meet with make. Quibi's best case scenario now is that they become a martyr, a case study that helps other founders succeed. On to it. So Quibi's going to fail and that intro was too long. Got it. Let's get to the first question for many, maybe most of you. What the heck is Quibi? Quibi is, quote, a short-form mobile video platform started in 2018 by industry royalty. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is a billionaire film producer, and the CEO he hired, Meg Whitman, who is a billionaire business tech executive. You might recognize her name. You almost certainly do if you've been in the tech world. 
Quibi raised $1.8 billion, with a B, dollars to produce short, mobile-focused films. After about two years of stealth development, Quibi launched this past April, specifically April 6th. You can download the app and sign up for a 14-day free trial before you have to pay $4.99 a month if you want ads, or $7.99 if you want an ad-free experience. About 1.7 million people have done that and continue to do that. Quibi's landing page makes the differentiators crystal clear. Why does Quibi exist? Because it is markedly different from any other content out there, they say. The length is different. Their shows are two to four hours in total, and they are broken into 10-minute episodes. The quality is supposedly really high. They have big-name actors, and they have big-name directors. You've heard of everyone who's involved in all of this stuff. Finally, the medium. Quibi is only offered on your phone through the app. Can't watch it on TV. Can only watch it on your phone. Quibi launched with 30 or so shows super saturated with big names. Idris Elba, Kristen Bell, Bill Hader, LeBron James, a Hemsworth, Jennifer Lopez, and on and on. They have documentaries. They have reality TV shows. They have dramas. They have comedy. The big and seemingly only question people seem to be asking is, can Quibi actually compete with Netflix, Amazon, and HBO? Quibi spent $1.8 billion or raised $1.8 billion, but Netflix, Amazon, and HBO are spending 10 or more times that each year on original content alone. So according to Katzenberg, according to Katzenberg, that doesn't matter. He says, quote, we're competing against free. We have to offer something that is meaningfully, measurably, quantifiably, creatively different. Meg Whitman continues, if you're at a doctor's office, you're commuting to work, you're waiting for the kids at school, you have these in-between moments. We're bringing the best of Hollywood content to an entirely new environment. So Quibi exists because you don't watch Netflix or HBO on your phone at the dentist. The pitch actually isn't terrible. You might even want to download the app. I did. And I hear your inner monologue. You know, there isn't high quality content created for these moments. I haven't ever watched 10 minutes of an episode of Game of Thrones while I'm waiting for the dentist. Maybe Brian's wrong on this. Maybe Quibi's on to something here. Let's see. They aren't. Startups are an eventual meritocracy. It's certainly not as good as a real meritocracy, but it's better than most industries. When you're first starting out, things like wealth, privilege, and prior success will give you asymmetric opportunity. That's how you raise $1.8 billion, still somehow with a B, before you've got a single customer. But eventually, the cows come home to roost. It's a Naked Gun two and a half reference for those scoring at home. You'll only survive if a core group of early customers absolutely love your product. These customers will then catalyze broader growth. Love is a really high bar. You'll only get it if you're solving a real, urgent, painful, immediate problem. For these fickle first customers, they'll view your product as either a hell yes or as a no. They won't rally around something mediocre. They won't try something mediocre. They certainly won't tell their friends about something mediocre. And here's where most founders and Quibi make their fatal mistake. They rightly see fickle early customers as their biggest risk. So they spend gobs of time and money building what they think will be a, quote, great first product. Something polished, something with tons of features, options, Hemsworths. At least one Hemsworth. I can't remember if there are multiple or not. They think this de-risks a fickle early customer. 
if you launch something polished to enough people, surely some group of customers is bound to love it, right? Nope. The problem stems from a misunderstanding of what a great early product is. People love products that feel personal. Products that feel like the company sat in their living room and listened to them vent about a painful problem that no one else seems to care about. Companies that then go out and solve that specific problem. If no one feels this way, you're not going to grow. The first product needs to be based on a living room insight. I visualize this as a seesaw. If I'm starting a company, I know I'm going to have to beat everyone in the world at something. It's either going to be the uniqueness of the customer insight at the core of my product, or it's going to be the product itself. That's the top of one side of the seesaw, where I know a ton about my customer, and then the bottom of the seesaw is how hard my product is to make. So I know a lot about my customer, so the product becomes much easier to make because it's simple. There's just one or two features solving a very specific problem for a specific customer. But if the seesaw is tilted the other way, it starts to look pretty terrifying. That's where you don't have an insight about your customer that is meaningful enough to really narrow down to an initial product, so you have to build a massive product that you hope lots of people will like. The game I can win is picking the customer I build for because I set the stakes. I've stacked the deck. I can just narrow in on a tighter and tighter group of customers until I have an insight that's unique, and then I can build something for those people. Kevin Kelly succinctly makes the point. Don't be the best. Be the only. But Brian, this isn't some startup in a garage. These are people who can build a $500 million product without blinking, and they can have Hemsworths lined up with one call. They don't have to start small. Shouldn't they leverage that? Nope. There's no cutting the line in startups. Eventual meritocracy. The first step is a tight customer group that loves your product. That customer needs to be cohesive and aligned in the living room problem you're solving for them. In 2020, a unique insight into a customer is actually what's scarce. Products for that customer are a commodity. What I mean by that is, you can always find someone who can build a product. Products, unless you're building something like a hoverboard, are the easy part. Understanding the customer is the hard part. There are three questions that allow you to understand whether your startup idea, or in this case, Quibi's, is based on a customer insight that's strong enough that it can support, that it can anchor a product that early customers will love. The questions are simple, they're straightforward, and they're ridiculously hard to answer. They are, who's it for? What will it help them do? And what do you know about these customers that everyone else is missing? Let's see how Quibi does. Quibi's three-question disaster. Let's take a simplistic look at the questions from Quibi's perspective. Who's it for? Quibi is razor sharp on who they're for. People who have 10-minute slots throughout the day and enjoy high-quality content. And they have a smartphone. Great. That includes me and you and just about everyone else in the U.S. So let's use me. Two, what will it help them, or in our case now, me, do? Again, Quibi is very concise. They'll help me watch high-quality content during the short breaks throughout my day. Katzenberg is clear that he can beat whatever free thing I do now. So let's think about it. When I'm at the dentist office, what am I doing? Maybe I'm scrolling through Twitter or maybe I'm looking at recipes or something like that. Katzenberg's confident that I would prefer to watch high-quality content with Idris Elba. Three, what do you know about customers that others are missing? This is the toughest and most important question of the three. We can go back to the source. Here's Meg Whitman talking about it. 
people say, wow, there's so many different streaming services. And yes, there are, but there's none at all like ours. Most streaming services are designed to be watched at home in the living room, probably at night or on the weekends. Ours is designed to be watched during the day and on the go. Great. So the way that Quibi sees the world is in a simple matrix. There is high quality content. There is low quality content. There's content watched at home. There's content watched on the go. They see high quality content watched at home as a very crowded space. HBO, Netflix, Amazon, whoever. They see high quality content watched on the go as a massive gap in the market. So Quibi's core insight, the thing that they're basing a $2 billion company on, is that if there were an option for high quality, short form content, people would choose it over scrolling through blogs that claim they have an overnight oats recipe. Quibi's core insight, the thing they're basing a $2 billion company on, is that if there were an option for high quality, short form content, people would choose it over whatever else it is they do now on their phones. And maybe they're right, but the three questions are about transparency. They prove that you have a level of insight into the first customer you're serving that's deeper than competitors who are solving the same problem. In this case, the problem is I've got 10 minutes of free time and I don't know what to do. Ideally, they get at the question at the core of most transformational companies, to my knowledge, first asked by the YC folks. What do you believe that most other people don't? The most obvious example of a great answer to this is still a helpful one. Way back when, Airbnb believed people would rather sleep in a room above someone else's garage than in a hotel. That was crazy when it was first proposed. But the insight wasn't made blind. It was based on groups of people already showing this behavior on Craigslist and couch surfing when they couldn't book hotels for things like South by Southwest. And Airbnb's initial product made it easier for those people to do what they were already doing. Airbnb built a focused product that solved a massive problem for a tiny group of customers they had insight into. Then they grew in concentric circles. That's the equation for growing a big company. You don't start big, you start small. Quibi's insight looks ridiculously weak and obvious in comparison. To test it out, I've given Quibi the past two and a half weeks of my life. Every time I had those 10-minute breaks in my day, I took notice of what I did, of what Quibi's actual competition was. A typical example, the other day I had 10 minutes before a virtual dermatologist meeting, which is a very 2020 thing to do. So what did I do with those 10 minutes? I checked Gmail, I checked my work email, I checked Slack, WhatsApp, texts. In my group text, someone wrote something about the Michael Jordan documentary saying that LeBron was better. I freaked out, I went on basketball reference, I screenshotted a bunch of stats, I sent them back. Then I went on YouTube, I found a video of Jordan talking about how passionate he was, I sent that. I then found a video about LeBron saying something like basketball didn't matter to him, I sent that. And all of a sudden, it was time for my virtual dermatologist appointment. I had honestly meant to get to Quibi, but I just had to do this stuff first. Uh oh. A few years back, I traveled with a friend to surf up and down the coast of Australia. He was an experienced surfer. My surfing experience consisted of watching Point Break a few dozen times. We went into a surf shop on our first day. Hi, we'd like to rent two surfboards. Great, what are you hiring them for? Australian accents are the best. I thought about trying to do one, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. I grinned and replied, we're hiring them to go surfing. Well, yeah. But do you want to surf big waves? Do you want to splash around in knee-deep water? Do you want to take a few Instagram pictures? What are you hiring the surfboard to do? 
we quickly got his point. Realizing my friend was hiring a surfboard to surf head high waves, and I was running a board to take an Instagram picture and then float around on my belly looking for sea turtles. The late, truly great Clayton Christensen dubbed this the jobs to be done theory. Your customer hires your product to do a specific job. In my 10-minute gaps throughout the day, I hire all sorts of products to do all sorts of jobs. Here's what I noted I did with my time. Engage with texts, Slack, WhatsApp, emails. I read or watched content sent to me from those channels. I checked in on work tasks. I checked the weather, a financial app, news, and anything about sports. Kindle, Audible, Backgammon, FIFA Soccer. These are the things that I did with my 10-minute windows. What was the job to be done? I listed out a few. Feel closer to friends. Feel more prepared for work. Feel more prepared for life. Learn something I can put into a blog. Play something that entertains me. Did I watch videos? Absolutely. I watched everything from John Oliver to those Jordan clips I mentioned to grainy old Bill Burr stand-up. I even watched 30 minutes of Middleditch and Schwartz, a show on Netflix that I broke into smaller segments when I could. Every video I watched had been sent to me by a friend in some sort of group chat or email. I was anxious to watch the content I'd be sent so that I could discuss it with those friends. My job to be done wasn't watch great content, it was feel close with friends. I don't even have Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on my phone, which is another thing that tons of people do during those 10-minute segments. So Quibi falls over themselves to note that they aren't competing with Netflix, Amazon, and HBO. Instead, they're competing with Apple, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and 10 years of ingrained habits, positive feedback loops, and trillions of dollars spent to do an amazing job of solving my core jobs to be done in short windows. Yikes. Now, I did watch some Quibi shows. I forced myself to. And they're really well made. But they solved no problem for me. There is no shortage of good content. And as with most of the content I consumed, the real job to be done is talking about it with friends. And none of my friends were watching Quibi shows. They're watching everything else in all different formats. Now, I did watch Quibi shows. I forced myself to. And they're really well made. But they solve no problem for me. There's plenty of good content around. And with most of the content I consumed, my real job to be done was talking about that content with friends. It wasn't ever about the content itself. So how do you grow? This is how companies get big and there aren't exceptions. First, start with a customer with a very clear problem. Build a hyper-specific product for them. I'm making all this up, but maybe Quibi noticed a few things. Maybe they noticed that Spotify has created a long tail of artists that have rabid, tight fan bases. These artists tour small venues constantly. Fans scour YouTube videos of live performances of bands and then download and watch them during their 10-minute breaks throughout their day. They then share these new clips that they find on text groups and on Reddit. Great. Quibi is flush with cash, and they think this is an interesting first niche to get rabid customers, so they deploy solo, professional videographers to a group of small bands that are touring cities across the country. Again, they didn't actually do this. I'm just saying this could be a thing that they did. Then they would start posting these videos on YouTube. They would start getting active on Reddit channels. They'd build a page that said, Quibi will have live concerts broken into 10-minute segments that you can shuffle through for $4.99 a month. Sign up here. Maybe this is a hell yes to the audience. Maybe they sign up in droves. Quibi now knows who they are and what they want. They can continue to double down on them. Specifically, they realize the core job to be done for this customer is to share music and be part of a community. So all the features that they build into their app are around sharing. 
You can easily create GIFs. You can clip the music and add it to TikTok if that's what TikTok is. I don't really know. You can drop it into Reddit or into your next group text. Quibi then is mobile for a reason, to take advantage of all the sharing features that an iPhone has. Step two, add a feature or two and spread to an adjacent segment that's influenced by the first customer segment. So these band lovers, the ones that like this first iteration of Quibi, they are no doubt on text chains with people who aren't band lovers. But these clips are going to get bombarded into these group chats and maybe their friends become intrigued. They wouldn't have sought this out on their own, but they want to be part of the conversation. The initial product wouldn't have been a hell yes, but their job to be done is to engage with their friends. So they get involved in Quibi. Maybe you learn this new customer actually really likes documentaries on these musicians. So you make a few of those chopped into 10-minute stories. You test. You see how these perform. You move horizontally to an adjacent customer segment. Step three, expand to more customers, add what you've learned works. Now you've got some customers with diverse interests on the product. You can start testing things. Try out non-music documentaries. Try out a mini-series. Bring back Reno 911. See how people react. See if you're solving a job to be done for your customer. See if things are resonating. If not, keep going deeper. If you find a thread, pull on it. Try niche customer acquisition channels. Add features to increase engagement for specific types of content. An early company needs to be a learning machine. You need to lean into the fact that you don't know anything and build all of your features around improving that feedback loop. Learn what works, double down on it, figure out what doesn't quickly, drop it. So how did Quibi do? Well, let's see. There's an article titled, A Week After Launch, Quibi Promises to Ditch Mobile-Only Format. A quote from that article says, It's quite an engineering lift. It's not easy, but the engineers are trying to think about how to do this on an accelerated timescale. Chief Executive Officer Meg Whitman told Bloomberg TV. Whoops. So to recap, Quibi spent a billion dollars, maybe more, on a product that they built over two years. The whole point of the product was that it would live only on mobile because there were these gaps, these moments in time when customers needed high quality content and they didn't have it. Now, about a month after they launched, they learned that people don't actually care about watching content then and that the whole premise of a company that raised $1.8 billion is flawed. There has to be a way to test this before you raise all that money, spend all that money, build a complex product. Quibi is ditching their main differentiator a weekend. This is just something that should never happen in 2020. Be impatient with action and patient with results. I started with my favorite quote from my favorite movie, and I'm going to end with my favorite quote about investment or startups. Here's Jeff Bezos on the best advice Warren Buffett gave him. Bezos said, I asked Warren, I said, your investment thesis is so simple. You're the second richest guy in the world, and it's so simple. Why doesn't everyone copy you? Buffett replied, because nobody wants to get rich slow. The way to grow big requires you to start very small, to focus and solve small problems, to learn and then grow, to not skip steps. It'll feel like it's going to take longer, but it won't. It's the only path to growth. You cannot skip these early steps. You can't underestimate the nuances of customer segments. You need to spend time with early customers and understand the job that you're doing for them. You need to understand emotionally why they care about what you're doing. You can't just skip straight to the Hemsworths. As always, reach out if you want to talk about this approach. Brian at GetTackleBox.com. I hope you're all safe. I hope you're all happy. Talk to you soon.